So this week's episode of the Ortho Show, we're going to pivot a little bit away from orthopedic surgeons, but we're staying in the space and talking about one of the hottest topics in orthopedics, and that is private equity. My group, Orthopedic Surgical Associates in North Chelmsford, was just purchased by Spire Orthopedics and Gary Hirschman, who was our guest today, who is an attorney from Epstein, Becker & Green, who's an M&A regulatory attorney, was our lead counsel in that process. Gary and I talk about some of the fallacies of private equity, some of the benefits of private equity, explain the process of why private equity is interested in orthopedics, but then also talk about how these deals are worked. It's really great information. I think you're going to absolutely want to listen to every word. Hashtag follow the throw. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by ModMed. Envisioning a world where the orthopedic software we build increases practice success and improves patient outcomes. ModMed offers an intelligent ortho-specific cloud platform of healthcare IT solutions that help surgeons and staff save time, drive efficiency, and elevate patient experiences. To learn more and see a demo of the number one EHR system, EMMA, as well as practice management, revenue cycle management, analytics, patient engagement tools, and more, Visit modmed.com slash orthopod. That's modmed.com slash orthopod. Modmed. It's about time. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. We're going to pivot a few degrees today. We're actually not talking to an orthopedic surgeon, but I wanted to really talk about one of the hottest topics in orthopedics right now, and that's the involvement of private equity in the purchase of uh, private uh, practice orthopedic surgical groups across the country. So we have an absolute expert with us today, Gary Hirschman, who is an M&A regulatory attorney, health industry educator, uh, uh, key opinion leader, who's a, a key attorney for Epstein, Becker & Green in New York. Uh, Gary, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to see you again. Scott, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So in full disclosure, uh, you and I have been working diligently probably over the last five or six months to uh, allow my practice to get across the finish line or what I should say the start line uh, as uh, partners with uh, Spire Orthopedics, which is an MSO or private equity group that's been established to uh, find like-minded orthopedic private practice groups, bring them together so that they can bind and, and do great work. So I want to thank you for the hard work that you did and all the due diligence that allowed us to get through the process. And I thought you would be an awesome guest to really try and explain what private equity is doing, why they're interested in orthopedics, and, and why that is such a buzz. So I thought what we would start with is I'd like you to give us an explanation as to why private equity is interested in orthopedic surgery at this time. Thank you, Scott. So what's, what's happening is, is that private equity companies are investors and they, they get their money, their private equity investment funds from very wealthy individuals, from pension plans, retirement plans, um, institutional uh, funds also. And, their goal is to invest in areas where they think 
there's the ability to grow a company and consolidate a subsector of an industry and, and to make it work better and to invest capital and to grow it and to get a return of three to five times their investment over anywhere between three to seven years, on average, maybe five years. And what's interesting, the dynamic right now is, I think I read recently that there's like $2.7 trillion of money that these investors have, private equity. And sometimes it's referred to as dry powder. Dry powder meaning money that's dry and waiting to be invested in acquiring businesses and companies. And right now, healthcare is the hottest investment. Um, probably right up there with life sciences, pharmaceuticals for obvious reasons under the pandemic, and healthcare IT, virtual health. But physicians are, are very much a part of that because there's a lot of uh, fragmentation. There are so many different groups all over the place. Some are big, a lot are small. There's a lot of one to five person groups. There's a lot of five to 20 person groups. And then, I don't know, probably just about 20 groups of 50 or more you know, orthopedic surgeons. And so there's a lot of interest in orthopedics, um, in, in investing in orthopedics in particular. There's other specialties that have been um, heavily invested in over the years by private equity, like um, dentists, dermatology groups, eye care, ophthalmology groups. And that's been going on for 15 years, maybe 30 years for, for dentists. And um, it's shown a lot of promise. So private equity has now branched out into other subspecialty areas. And they really focus on areas, are, most of the areas are surgical subspecialties. So they've branched into urology and gastroenterology. Um, and now they're, they're branching big time into orthopedics because not only is there fragmentation, but there's lots of opportunity to do well as a larger organization, invest capital for growth, um, and also to benefit from ancillary services. So surgical subspecialties throw off a lot of ancillaries. Almost all of, the, all of the ones I just said have ambulatory surgery. And ambulatory surgery, outpatient freestanding ambulatory surgery centers have been growing very fast as the industry is changing to be primarily outpatient care. Other ancillaries are laboratories, uh, but let's focus on orthopedics. Um, physical therapy, durable medical equipment, imaging, uh, biologics. I mean, there's lots of uh, orthopedic urgent care, occupational health. Ortho, have, ortho laser. People. Don't forget. Don't forget about ortho laser, Gary. Come on now. Stay and with me here. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> it's another ortho potential laser. source of gen. So it's interesting. And I think that's a really important point for our listeners, right? That, that the idea of private equity buying into to medical practices has actually been around for quite some time. And it's been done successfully with many turnovers and, and happy doctors and happy practices. It's relatively new to the orthopedic space. How many orthopedic deals uh, for private equity are you aware of that have been done, let's say, in the last 24 months? In the last 24 months. So 2020 was a little quiet for obvious reasons. 
In fact, I have this chart that just shows total physician transactions, and then I'll get to orthopedics. But total physician transactions since 2015, the volume of transactions has grown 20 to 30% per year until 2021. In 2021, it grew by over 50%. So over 2019, which was around 219 deals reported, physician transactions reported publicly, and almost 400, 393 last year. That's the count from a Bloomberg uh, health compilation. So a lot. Let me talk about, so that's a 50% increase. How about, um, how about just orthopedics? So let's, because I'm curious. Yeah. Just yeah. orthopedics. Um, there have been around at least two dozen transactions yeah. um, in the last 24 months, so on average, one a month. And let me just give you another a factoid that I have here. As of the end of 2020, okay, there were, there were a total of seven orthopedic platforms, okay? Um, as of the end of 2021, there's now 15. It's more than doubled. So 15. Just in one year. So it's one good. year. So that means that the players, the, the platform, the private equity players, there's 15 major players in the field right now. Yes. We're talking to orthopedic groups to have conversations about partnering with them, you know, into private equity. And I, I don't think it's much of a surprise, you know, role, so everybody knew that medicine is recession proof, right? You don't have to worry about it. No matter what, people still need health care. Well, all of a sudden the pandemic rolls around and nobody's going to do anything. And, you know, there were actual, you know, practices that closed. They literally closed their doors because they didn't have money to be able to pay the bills. So it's not surprising that coming out of this pandemic, that people are looking for solutions for, for longevity in what is, I think, one of the most unsettled times for healthcare delivery uh, as we move forwards. I mean, so why are the physicians, I'll, I'll talk from our private practice, why we were concerned, right? So first and foremost, every single day, we're asked to do more, press more buttons, do a new EMR, see more patients. And every day we get another email or watch on Becker's and we're supposed to get a pay decrease because we're making too much money. So that's a problem. Then you have large healthcare systems that are like, well, we, we see in the handwriting of the wall here now, it's going to be this outpatient surgery stuff. We need to set up centers out in the community because people don't want to come and see us anymore. So they want to drop in and have uh, a local community doctors now being put in by these large healthcare systems. And then some people are like, just, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to have the hospital buy us out. So that way I don't have to worry about hiring the secretaries or the bills and this, that, and the other. And what happens? Why would you want to partner with a hospital right now where everybody, no matter what meeting you go to, says everything is going to go to outpatient, right? So, right. so for us, it was like, all right, we need a strategy to be partnered with like-minded, you know, established private practices with people that are really, you know, doing well with what they're doing. And we need some help from an outside source that can provide revenue, can provide counsel, can provide strategy, economies of scale, so that you know we could potentially you know do better in, in our financial status. And it was time for us to help you know for uh, for doctors to want to take back over control of what's happening. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. Now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I agree. I'll I'll agree with what you said because those are all 
very um, bona fide uh, reasons that we actually see, you know, your group and many other groups around the country doing these transactions, or at least exploring, is this right for us? What, what, what is out there? How, how, would, how would our group be viewed vis-a-vis -vis an offer and the type of company that would make the offer? And is there a cultural fit? Again, it's not all about the money. It's, it's about a good cultural fit that you believe that this is a good alignment moving into the future and that this is a good company to help you kind of face these headwinds that are gonna be increasing in the future. So you mentioned the CMS reimbursement cut. I think the latest one that was announced, I don't forgot whether it's final, is a 3.75% reduction. And I think the data that I saw um, was that there, I think it's about $80,000 is the salary reduction that orthopedists saw in 2020. Now that might be partly pandemic related, but that's a, a pretty a pretty interesting statistic. So I think that the challenges, like you're saying, um, you know, how do you? It's becoming more challenging to to do well to still maintain your current profitability. That's the challenge now. It's kind of hard to think about how do we do even better in light of all these changes going on. I mean, look at the consolidation. Optum has has purchased the you know the largest primary care groups in the top twenty or twenty five major metropolitan areas, including you know in in the Boston region and Denver and New Jersey, New York. I can go on and on. So Optum, you know, buying up primary care groups. Obviously, hospitals have been buying up primary care groups for many years now. And so what's happening is now hospitals and the Optums and other large uh, primary care organizations, they're starting to bring in specialists. Their Optums bringing in orthopedists now. So in the markets where they're bringing in orthopedists, you don't think they're going to tell those primary care doctors, you know, send the orthopedic work or the urology work or the gastroenterology work to, you know, keep it within our hospital medical group or our Optum medical group. That is happening more more and more. The uncertainty yeah. in reimbursement regulations, um, the shift to value-based care, how are you going to navigate this? It's really happening. It took 10 years, but now there's real, the train has left the station and is now picking up speed. It's still not there. It's somewhere in the middle, um, but it's really happening and the payers are expecting it. Um, and where do you get all the capital to expand your practice offices. Yeah, com completely, completely agree. To add ancillaries, to get advanced data analytics and IT systems to be able to do well in population health. Right, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I want to be clear to our listeners, right? I mean, this is a conversation about business, right? And as doctors, we have 70 employees currently or before, you know, before the merger. Now, obviously, we'll, we'll see how that rolls. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that we're a large business and, and it's hard to run a business. Our primary, our primary goal is outstanding patient healthcare. Every single individual patient that walks through the door is the most important patient that we're working with at that moment. And we'll do what we can to provide state-of-the-art management and care for that patient. However, there's a lot of things that are changing in the way healthcare is delivered. And a lot of these things are very expensive to do that. And so when you have the ability to partner and and with a with a group like this that has access to resources and knowledge uh, and intelligence and then can provide 
a lot of these services that we can now come together and provide those services at less money so that therefore we can employ more people and deliver state-of-the-art healthcare to our patients. So that's the main mission. Yes, we want to be successful financially as a business, but we want to provide outstanding healthcare. And, and I think for us in particular, having spent a lot of time doing this, we, and I'll be perfectly clear. I mean, we interviewed four or five platforms for private equity. We interviewed four or five attorneys as to who was going to rep- represent us in the process. And it was six months and it was a complex process. But at this point, we're really happy we've done it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'd like us to talk about next, uh, especially for the orthopedic surgeons that are listening, who as physicians, we are always the most hesitant for change, right? We've learned what we know, we do what we want to do. And the last thing we want is somebody to come in and change things and we have to learn about it and we're worried. So let's talk about the fallacies of what people think about when private equity comes in and purchases. A, a, so talk about the corporate practice of medicine, for example. How is that? People think like the private equity is coming in. They're going to tell me I've got to start seeing more patients and I can't use that injection and I have to use that brace. Why is that not true? Okay, that's fallacy number one, um, that private equity investors are going to change the way you practice and tell you what to do clinically. It is absolutely not the case, and they, they can't do that in many states. And the doctors, even, even in states that don't have corporate practice of medicine prohibitions, the doctors will not accept that. The, the investors, the private equity, have accepted that they're not going to change how you treat a patient. Um, They're not going to change your clinical protocols. They leave the practice of medicine to the doctors. And there's usually a local practice, a local clinical board. That's all doctors that make those decisions. A related fallacy, number two, is they're going to crack the whip and make me work harder. The answer is no, they're not. All they want you to do is maintain your current productivity levels. They don't want you to go down, but they're not going to crack the whip and require you to go up in productivity. They're valuing your practice and uh, paying you for it um, based on how you currently operate. And so if they say, well, you're going to have to increase your office hours by 10 hours a week, the answer is no deal. No deal. Like that's not the deal. You're looking at our numbers. Our numbers are based on this schedule, this many hours, eight weeks, 10 weeks of vacation. Your vacation's not going to be reduced either. It's it's based on your, nothing's going to change in terms of work activity. If you want to work harder, you can, but they're not cracking the whip and requiring it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, you know, spot on. We've been now for two months and, uh, you know, the only thing that's a little different is who's buying lunch. But other than that, you know, we use the same medicines. We've got the exact same staff. You know, one of the other things that uh, one of the other fallacies is you're going to come in and you're going to fire doctors because they're not productive or you're going to get rid of my nurse practitioner because I don't need her because I wasn't using her. But the, the clinical governing board, which is made up of in our group, five doctors out of the 12, meets around with the partnership from MS uh, from, from Spire and we make the clinical decisions. And if we want to hire a new doctor, you know, we have the, the ability to say who that doctor is going to be. Uh, if someone's not performing, et cetera, there's all kinds of rules as far as for cause and not cause and all that. But at the end of the day, 
the decision as far as the clinical people, the doctors, the nurse practitioners and physician assistants, it's made by the doctors who continue to do so in the way that they've always done it. Right. And the clinical practice board, the doctors also obviously are the ones that, you know, to review the credentials of who you hire. Right. right. In other words, that's a clinical matter. That's not for, you know, your private equity, you know, partner to decide that's for you to decide who, What's the quality of your group to continue to hire the best and brightest and to continue with your standards of hiring um, and your staffing ratio? If your staffing ratio is, is one nurse practitioner to one doctor or one and a half to one, that's locked in. Again, that's your current model of practice. They can't say, oh, let's wipe them all away, the, the nurse practitioners or mid-levels. That's, that's not how it works. Exactly. And private equity looks at your practice and they say, okay, this is the amount of money you guys have made last year. You know, this is what your, your EBITDA is, which is the earnings before income taxes and uh, amortization. And so that's the profit that you've made. And that's the value of your business. And we're going to pay you a nut for, for or, or value or a multiple on that. And that's how your business is evaluated. But they're not coming and buying a business that's failing. They're, they're not going to make you an offer. So they're looking for high quality private practices. They're doing well in their community. And what's interesting, though, know, there's another group that's joining uh, relatively soon. I don't want to use names. But, you know, it's interesting that they do some things really well, and there are some things that we do really well. So they have higher expenses, expense ratio than we do, but but they actually bring in more money. They're more profitable on their uh, uh, on their ability to, to do collections. So there's going to be some things that we're going to take away from them, and they're going to want to do some things that are going to come out of our practice. And then what, what that does is build best practice, right? So that all of this group now of 100 doctors that we're now joined with, We'll develop these, these economies of scale. We can get better uh, IT. We can do better job with human resources and we can be more efficient. And that's a good thing. And Scott, there's some things that you guys do well, the other group does well, but I'm telling you, there's a lot that your partner, Spire, is going to bring to the table Yes, that is going to make you do well in many different areas. They're going to take the good from everything and they already have a corporate, like you said, they have a corporate executive infrastructure. They have a CEO, a, C, a chief financial officer, a chief operation officer, an IT uh, vice president, an HR vice president. They already have that team in place. And so you, you're going to get the benefit of that kind of like Wall Street, you know, professional infrastructure, very smart business people. Now we're going to be running a practice that, you know, a lot of practices had a couple of people like an office manager or even a CEO, but they didn't have that whole corporate infrastructure. And they're really going to be, everyone's going to be able to benefit from that and do better in both strategizing into the future, dealing with changes in the industry. And like you said, malpractice will be cheaper. Health benefits will be cheaper instead of for 50 employees for, you know, 500 employees. Obviously there's a lot of benefit there too. 100%. All right, let's talk about another fallacy, which people are always worried about. All right, we talk about first bites and second bites and first inning and second inning. You know, in orthopedics, we're still young when it comes to private equity, but a lot of the other subspecialties have been through eight, nine, 10 turns, if you will, Uh, all have done, you know, successfully. And so, so one of the things that we were worried about, what we always, well, 
Well, what happens when, when Spire sells to the next private equity group in 18 months because we've built a book of business, we've done all the things that we said we were going to do, and now another group wants to come in and buy? They're going to come in. They're going to throw out the contract that we have. We're going to wind up having a new guy come in who's going to tell us what to do and fire people again. So let's go over that as to why there's, there's security in the contract that you're signing. That's a major fallacy um, that um, the next partner is all of a sudden going to change everything. That's a major fallacy. And let me explain why. So first of all, just to be clear, when you do a transaction like this and you're one of the groups that's being consolidated into this much larger platform, um, when they get to a certain size or time frame, they're going to exit the investment. They have to. Okay. Um, when when they do that, everyone is going to rise with the tide. So everyone's going to be doing just as well as the as, as the private equity investor investment money did. If it goes up three times, so is the value of your of your of your rollover equity. To be clear, however, there's no guarantee that this is going to get two, three, five times. But that's what the track record of a lot of these investors is. But there's no guarantee. The market can change. Um, we think it's very unlikely that that's going to happen, um, but that's number one. Number two, um, you will not, the doctors will not have a veto right. The way these, these PEs work, and I've never seen anything different, is when they decide they want to exit and they decide they're going to this company after they do their own you know, public bidding uh, with all the bigger players, um, they do not need your consent to go ahead and, and to change to partner X. However, however, practically speaking, the doctors are the assets, okay? The doctors are who brings in the patients. The last thing private equity funds want and platforms is to have unhappy doctors because unhappy doctors means, means uh, a loss, a, a decrease in investment. All of, these, all of these private equity firms want the doctors to be happy, okay? So when they pick a partner to move forward, they're going to make sure there's alignment. And let's say that this investor, your original partner, invested $300 million over five years and then decides to exit for $900 million. And we've seen this happen. And those figures are not exaggerations. But let's say something like that happens, or just say it's six hundred billion, whatever. Do you think that that bigger investor is going to come in and pay six hundred million dollars without doing very extensive due diligence, even more extensive than they did on your on each group when they came in? They're going to speak to the major groups. They're going to make sure the doctors are happy. They're going to make sure they like this. Why would they invest six hundred, nine hundred million dollars and want to all of a sudden go change things? Okay, that's not the way it works or have the doctors be unhappy. Then they would have just spent $600 million and now it's worth a lot less if they start to piss off the doctors. That's not the way they operate whatsoever. And they can't just change your agreements. That's not the way it works. They may, um, when there is a second bite, when a second investor comes in, there will be the ability of doctors to cash out part of their rollover equity. Like if it doubled in size, take out that extra and go back to the, you know, the baseline amount. Um, 
they may ask you to sign an updated non-compete, but they're not going to wipe out all of the agreements that are in place. They're valuing this at hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollars because they like it the way it is. Nobody's going to invest all this money and just change things. They're investing because they like what's been built and they speak to the doctors and they're happy. That's their due diligence. So so let's talk about one more fallacy. And then I want to talk about the process of, 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 of what you get as a physician when you sell. All right, so the other fallacy is we're going to join with this group. It's this large private equity firm. They've got class A shares and they're only going to sell us class C shares. And when the deal goes through at the second inning and they made $600, their shares were more more, you know, more valuable than ours, or we're a different class, so therefore they're going to get paid out more. That's a fallacy. We, at least within our deal, within your s- deal, that <laughs> that there is one other fallacy I'm going to bring up after we talk about this one. But but you're right, Scott. Um, all of the deals I've worked on, um, the it's very important when you do a deal or do a letter of intent. And I really recommend to get lawyers involved for letters of intent. Absolutely. That letter of intent has to be looked at an attorney before you sign it and go through the deal. So the letter of intent will say, should say that your rollover equity is pari passu, which is a Latin term that means equal, the same as the the investor's um, equity. Um, There are deals where some investors do have preferred equity. Um, but those deals, you know, are structured differently. The financial terms are different. I would say that, um, a majority of the deals we work on, you know, the groups we work with want that parry pursue that same level of equity as the investors have. Now, sometimes they call it class A, B, C, D, E, F, G for different groups coming in, but it doesn't matter if it's all the same rights. There aren't, there isn't one class, including for the investors, that's preferred equity that gets some preferred extra return or first return. Um, there are some deals out there like that. It doesn't mean they're bad. They might be right for certain groups. But again, your deal and many other deals that we've worked on, it's the same parry pursue, the same equity, not different equity. The other, if I can move on to just one other fallacy that we're always asked is, hey, you know, isn't this just so the older guys can cash out? Um, We get that every time we present to a board or a group of shareholders. Um, Because there's always, you know, doctors in their 40s and early 50s, which I'll call earlier career doctors or mid-career doctors. And the answer is no. These deals will not work and won't even go forward if it's not structured in a way where it's right for all shareholders of the group at all stages of their career. In fact, I would argue that the doctors who are on the verge of retiring are not are, are not going to do as well as the doctors who are in their 40s, because the doctors in their 40s are not only going to get the second bite, which may be a doctor who's 60 stays for five years and gets the second bite, then retires. But the younger doctors are going to be there for the third bite, potentially the fourth bite. And like you said before, Scott, there's dermatology and eye care platforms and definitely dental platforms where there have been multiple, multiple bites and each one of those being liquidity events where the doctors take more cash off the table from those transactions. So again, it's got to work for, for owners of all different um, 
stages of their career. Oh, I think that's fabulous. And that's a really great point. One that we, uh, we worked really hard with our younger you know, partners as well. And actually some of the, the, the youngest partners who weren't even partners wound up getting a piece of the equity because they wanted them to be involved in the process. You know, it's interesting. In, before I did private equity, if I wanted to retire and just said, my guys, I'm done, I'd get an accounts receivable payout for about nine, 60 days, right? Two months accounts receivable minus expenses and, and a gold pen and you walk away. But now what you do, as in many accountants and lawyers and other, other specialties and practices have always had a piece of equity in their business. And now you own something. So we're running short on time here, but there's a few things that I want to talk about. One of the things that people ask a lot about is the structure of the deal, right? So you have the EBITDA, which is the overall profit of the practice. They pay you on a multiple. You then have to decide how it gets distributed. But usually it's distributed as, as cash based on future earnings. And it's also a percentage of rollover equity, which, you, which is what you've been talking about. Give us a brief description about what the general percentages are of that uh, and how that typically works. Okay. So I know that orthopedists, different orthopedists and groups make different amounts, but let's assume there's the hypothetical orthopedic group where you have 10 doctors that each shareholders, because you only look at shareholders, that each, their total comp each year is a million dollars. Now, in this example, some might be 600, some might be 1.8, but, and you could apply these same uh, formulas to that. But let's say everybody was a million dollars each and there's 10 shareholders. You don't count associates. You just look at shareholder comp. So that's $10 million of shareholder comp. So if there's a 30% cut in that and it goes down to 7 million, that 3 million, and again, this is rough math, 3 million is the EBITDA. That's what you're giving up and going to the, the platform. So going forward, those same 10 doctors at the same level of productivity will make 7 million. That 3 million- Seven, of 700,000. 700,000, uh, 700, I'm yes, sorry. That's each. okay. Right, yeah, 7 each. million as a group. Right. 700,000 sure. each, sorry. And, and so that 3 million then is to come up with the value of the practice is subject to a multiple of that EBITDA. And that's the EBITDA that you're selling. The whole EBITDA is 10 million, but you're selling 3 million of it. And that EBITDA is then multiplied. So, you know, for smaller groups, it's six to nine. For larger groups, it's nine to 12. For huge groups of 50 or more, it could easily get to 14, 15, 16, okay? So in this example, let's go with a 10 multiple. So a 10 multiple of the 3 million EBITDA is $30 million. So they value your practice at $30 million. Now, what do you do with that 30 million? Okay, let's usually between 70 to 80% is cash at closing and the rest is rollover equity. So I'm gonna use the average of 25%. So if, if you went with 25%, then you have, um, so set three quarters of that $30 million is gonna be, cash. So 75%, so 22.5 million or 75 million, 22 and change will go cash at closing. And the, and the 25% is rollover equity to the doctors. That's very generally the way, the way these work. So, I mean, that's, that's a great explanation. That's exactly what happens. So the doctors in this model will equally split the 22.5, uh, whatever it is, they each walk away with $2.5 million in cash. 
which is hopefully long-term capital gains yes. rather than uh, W-2 income. So you pay less tax, assuming that that stays the way it is moving forwards, at least we know it was in 2021. And now you have a piece of the business. You That 25% gets in. So now each one of them has another $700,000 that's in equity with the new group that they're a part of moving forwards, which, which puts you into the concept of all working together to increase the value of your shares. And then hopefully with a second bite of the apple, you get another multiple and then a liquidity event as well. Even, and that's, yes. even if there's no second bite, let's just talk about, I know we only have two minutes left, but let me just take that example you gave, right? So you have these 10 doctors and they each have whatever it is, uh, 750,000 of rollover equity and, 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 and two and a half million dollars in cash. What did you have before? This goes to the concept of monetization. Like, what did you just do? You told me before that if you left your practice, your shareholder agreement says you get 60 days of trailing receivables and that's it. And that's what most doctors do. Most doctors get a pittance, a couple hundred grand, if that, or even if it's a few hundred grand um, when they retire or if they, God forbid, should become disabled. They don't, doctors don't think that my medical practice ownership is part of my personal wealth portfolio. It really is. And if you monetize it, you take that cash out and that's part of your wealth portfolio for retirement. And then that, that, that 750,000 of rollover equity in this example, a lot of times it's more, that you know is gonna get bought out at fair market value when you retire. Or if you stay through some second bites and third bites, that'll double or triple in value and, and you take money out and keep rolling and put more money aside. So even, even if you didn't have a second bite, right there, you've just showed how you've monetized and that this is true value rather than what happens under your shareholder agreement. While providing outstanding patient care for each and every patient that walks in the door, allowing us to, to have more resources to do that. Gary, thank you so much. This is an incredibly complex uh, topic. It cannot be fully covered in 30 minutes, but this was a great starter, great primer. Now, I'm going to throw you a little shout out here. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery is coming up in March. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to have uh, a symposium that's going to be happening at the same time. Give us a, a few comments on that and what, what we should expect and how people can register. Sure. So on March 24th, um, we are having a our fifth annual uh, Physician Transactions Conference which we've done each year. It's been virtual the last two years, but we're going back live. It's, it's at the University Club in Chicago on Thursday, March 24th, which is when a lot of orthopedists are in town for AAOS. And it's a free conference. We're gonna have uh, CME credits for free also for the doctors. We've gotten it accredited. And it's gonna be a full day from nine in the morning till 4.30 of just granular details, purely educational about how these transactions work and everything you need to know. It's like a full day course just on educating independent physicians um, on these transactions. And we're not allowing other people to attend, just independent uh, physicians that want to learn about these transactions with private equity. And uh, I think you've shot out the, uh, the, the brochure, but it's, it's on our website um, Epstein, Becker, and Green is www.ebglaw.com. And Scott, maybe you could post it. Um, I think you may have already. Um, it's, there's a registration form for that. And it's limited. It's limited uh, 
because of the university club room is limited. So um, we hope if you want to learn more, you can attend. Well, I can only tell you this, that I posted it at uh, six o'clock this morning as I was you know, mentioning that, that you, were, you, you were going to be coming on the show. There's only been 8,000 views of that post in the last 10 hours. So if that gives you any indication uh, of the interest in this space, I think you have it there. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Gary, we're going to try and figure out a way to maybe get a fro sighting on one of those panels. What do you think? The fro will be on a panel. And I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll confirm that. The fro will be, will be on the panel. We're adding... Um, a a lot of the panelists have been named already, but we're adding the physician panelists now. And by the way, we're going to have two panels of just physicians, one panel with physicians who have been in private equity for two or more years. And how's it going? And these are middle career doctors in their forties and fifties. And the second panel of physicians is going to be on physicians who have experienced second bite transactions. So again, two of the five panels are just physicians talking about their experiences. So a lot of firsthand direct uh, learning from other doctors. Fantastic, Gary. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to be here on the show. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund again, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time. 